Welcome, 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 ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Multifamily by The Slice. Today, we had Anthony Walker on the show, the king of Long Beach, apparently, because he is absolutely crushing it in the multifamily space up there. Uh, super knowledgeable guy. I, I learned a lot in this episode, and it was really fun. Really, really fun. Chi, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I obviously learned a ton since I don't do as much multifamily as you guys. My head kind of hurts. I'm going to listen to this podcast five times. I actually mean that because like in the legacy round, he said this one term that he said was like one of the top three terms multifamily investors should know. And I just, I was, nope, I had no idea what he was saying. So I was, I really love listening to Anthony. That's why I was, I really wanted him on this podcast because, um, you know, I don't do multifamily yet, but every time I hear him talk about it, I'm like, I want to, I want to do that. And he's one of the only people that makes me feel like it's so doable, but also like really cool and as Dre says, it's like sexy, like a sexy real estate class. Whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, Anthony definitely uh, knows how to how to explain it in a way that's super. I don't know. It's it's very accessible. I think so. I I really enjoyed the the episode. How about you, Dre? I like this one. Great, great insights. Great detail for sure. Man, I feel like it's just been a heavy hitter day for sure with the episodes. But just owning over 170 units on his own. I mean, in Southern California, it's just nuts. The insights that he discussed too. What I also really loved about this show is that a lot of people, you know, we've asked on the show before people's buying criteria, but I've never had someone explain it the way he did in SoCal. And I really appreciate that. So without further ado, without spoiling too much details, let's get into it. Welcome to the Multi-Failing Butter Slice Podcast. I'm your host, Dre Evans. I've got my two phenomenal co-hosts here, Chi Nguyen and Ike Eke. I want to thank everyone for tuning in for another fantastic episode. If you're a first-time listener, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. And if you're a returning listener, please leave us a positive review, your feedback, your perspectives. They all help us get the show, reaching out to everyone that wants to learn about real estate, spreading that knowledge, passing the torch, giving back. But before we introduce today's guest, I got to check in with Chi and Nguyen. It's going to be a long night tonight. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was just joking with uh, Dre and Ike to our listeners that, uh, you know, we always do a little like, hey, what have you been up to? I'd be like, well, since the past hour, we've just been recording. So, <laughs> no, but I will say I didn't share. We are closing on another uh, loan. Last loan that we closed on was $1.3 This one will be 540000 So moving on up on the food chain, closing on bigger loans uh, instead of smaller loans. Um, less work, right? Because uh, you're doing the same amount of work in the note investing world on a $30,000 unpaid principal balance versus a $500,000 or $1.3 million um, loan. So just uh, trying to not drive my asset managers crazy and <laughs> make their lives a little easier and doing moving on up on the, on, the, on the food chain there. How about you, Ike? What have you been up to? Oh, man, I've been up to a lot. I've been up to a lot. But, you know, the, the primary thing I'm, I'm doing right now is I'm working on some renovations. I'm on a property out in Phoenix, I'm a property I've owned for a while. And, you know, one of the great things that that's recently happened, actually this morning, I got a message from my contractor telling me, you know, about the progress that that he's made and and some of the some of the the milestones he's already hit. And he announced to me or let me know that he thinks he's going to be done early, which I don't know about you guys, but that is that message comes few and far between in, in this industry. So I'm pretty that's stoked on that. Pretty stoked on that. Dre, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. Uh I won't say what I said earlier, because as you know, we are on a podcast rodeo right now. 
<laughs> but I would say, uh, so I guess I'll touch on the book side. Um, you got the guided journal for Prove Them Wrong coming out. So I'm excited for that. Uh, impact people and in, impact kids in another way. Um, so I'm excited for that. And even just a conversation that we'll have shortly today is about um, our book and our way forward, which we obviously are keeping on the wraps and not touching about too much. But I'm excited for that. And I'll leave it at that. So Chi, why don't you introduce today's guest and we'll, we'll kick it off from there. Yeah, sure. So uh, our guest today is Anthony Walker. He runs Phoebe Cerritos Long Beach. Um, I met Anthony a few years ago and the first day I met him because I knew the person who used to run Phoebe, Phoebe Long Beach Cerritos. I was like, I approve. Because at first I, I actually said to his name is Matthew Owens. He was another guest on this podcast recently. I was like, I don't know. Are you sure you want to give this up? I feel like you're doing such a good job. And then I met Anthony. I was like, no, no, he's going to do a better job than you. <laughs> Please hand it off to him. He's so smart. He started off early and then he like went on and did all these calculations on like the whiteboard. And like, I've never, um, prior to meeting Anthony, I've never met somebody who took the time to like walk through it and is so um, articulate and eloquent in the way he explains multifamily concepts and real estate in general is super patient. So I really appreciated that about him. But other than that, I mean, he really is going to own all of Long Beach one day. Mm -hmm. I like, honestly, I'm putting it out there. I already know. <laughs> he already owns half of it. So um, he's crushing the game in the multifamily space. So I will, uh, I'll let him tell us our sto his story. Um, you know, Anthony, what's your background? How'd you get started? What are you up to these days? And, and we'll take it from there. Well, first of all, thank you for the glowing introduction. I don't know if I can beat that with my own interest. I appreciate that. Thank you for the kind words. Um, yeah, so I've been investing in multifamily since around 2010 or so. Pretty good timing I had, I have to admit. Um, I got into the business because I was in uh, the corporate insurance world for almost 10 years out of undergrad. And Really wanted to start a business for myself, and I just didn't know what to do. So I, I went and got my MBA at night while I worked full time. And I took a real estate investing class uh, at business school here in LA. And I thought, oh, this is cool. I don't, I don't have to like, you know, invent anything or learn how to code or come up with a website idea. And maybe I'll just buy properties and make that my thing. Uh, you know, it's right here in the textbook how you, you know, can be successful with that. And so I just need to get some money together and figure out how I can buy some stuff. Uh, so I got introduced actually to Buckingham Investments, the company that I, I run now through my network at, um, at school. So it was a great introduction. And uh, their brokerage company that's been around, I should say we're a brokerage company that's now been around for 60 years. This is our 60th anniversary, just 1963. And uh, they were founded on the idea that if everybody understood how investing in real estate worked, everybody would invest. And so it is a brokerage company. At the end of the day, we make money from commissions from the sale of property. Uh, but the difference between us is we spend a ton of time helping our investors understand how everything works, make sense of the numbers. If it's overwhelming at, at the beginning, we totally get that. So we put people in a no pressure environment and really kind of teach them, help them write investment plan and get going. So I actually started as a client while I still had my old uh, corporate W2 job. I bought myself a little duplex, pretty rough little duplex in Long Beach. <laughs> Uh, back at that time and uh, and just got started and I really loved their model. So I thought, hey, maybe I could make a complimentary business here out of getting my license and helping other people learn and invest in real estate here locally while 
If I'm good at it, I can use my commission income to grow my own portfolio. Um, so I did that. I left my full-time job, uh, got my agent's license, started helping people grow portfolios, started buying stuff myself, started syndicating deals with partners a little bit. Uh, but mostly I buy on my own account. And then over time, I got my broker's license, opened our Torrance office, and then slowly um, I've done more and more with the company. In 2017, I took over as the CEO and we've been growing the company, uh, growing our market share. Uh, I believe today we have 42 agents, three offices, and we do close to $200 million a year in uh, multifamily transactions right here in the Southern LA County and Northern Orange County market with a heavy focus on Long Beach. We really do a ton in Long Beach because that's just a great market to be involved in. And uh, along the way, it's, you know, the complimentary business has worked itself out pretty well. And I've been able to acquire a pretty sizable portfolio of buildings here in the local market for myself. Most of what I own is also in Long Beach, uh, but I have some stuff in Torrance and Inglewood as well. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. That's me. <laughs> hey, so prior to us hitting record, um, Ike and, and Anthony were already getting into it. I was like, no, 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 stop. Let's just record first. So I think, Anthony, you had just shared, you know, how many units. I don't know if that's something that you want to share. It's okay if you don't. And then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I've got 175 units spread over 22 buildings here locally. That's probably a smaller number than you're used to hearing a lot of other podcast guests talk about because you really can't even buy a 300 unit building in some of these markets. <laughs> doesn't you know, it, it pretty, either it doesn't exist or it's class A new construction and it's an institutional deal. And that's just a totally different corner of the market. So, you know, our average building, my average building is probably, what did I say? 175 over 22, right? Probably eight units or something like that, right? I have a couple four units still from the earlier parts of my portfolio's life, but most of the buildings I own are between like six and I think 21 units in size. They're smaller for what a lot of people would, would consider, but that's great because there's less to them, right? Less Absolutely. to the major systems, less expenses, uh, and um, they're a lot easier to run. Expense ratios are super low here. You might not realize that. <laughs> and so, you said also manage other units as well? Yeah. So I do asset management uh, really only for family properties right? because, you know, that's part of, I'm in the business, so I, I do that myself. And so I don't actually go and do the property management that is left to the professionals at the property management companies that I partner with. But, you know, the asset management is a huge part of what you do uh, as a multifamily owner, setting rents, renovation budgets. I was just walking all the properties to see what ADUs we might be able to build this week and stuff like that. And then I sponsor some syndication deals as well. So I have, you know, the sponsor's equity in those deals. And then I help with the asset management on those properties, use my balance sheet to guarantee the loans. And, uh, you know, raise funds for those deals. But I would, you know, more than half of it are just personal units of my own because I want, I love having the control and being able to call the shots and, you know, not answer to others on that stuff. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and I think Ike knows how strongly I feel about the SoCal investor. Um, I know Chi is one of them as well with the single family, but Ike and I debate and, and go to war about this quite, especially from the beginning just being one of the few that invest here in San Diego in small multifamily, being a big believer in that. And, and, and I get it, Anthony, as you know, especially for Ike and I have be a multifamily background and a lot of people come on the show and have hundreds of hundreds of units. And obviously we can't speak and, and, and beat our chest and scream on top of the, the tree chops in the jungle about what we own and, and being, but it's, it's about smaller 
Um, I'm at the 99 mark, but you know, as you know, it's, it's, it's different. And we know we can do a whole episode on that, but I just want to say that to you. Like I totally get it. And, and it is a different model entirely. It's not as sexy per se, but I think it's. Yeah, it, I agree. I mean, it sounds sexier to be able to say I own 5,000 doors, right? And right, that's right. just somehow that got to be the metric when you go out there to the seminar and the conference circuit. Right. Um, but totally, I mean, these smaller buildings, you don't necessarily need to syndicate them at all. So you can do everything yourself. You know, you got super low expenses. There's no pool. There's no elevator. There's no on-site manager at a lot of these things. They run really well. In California, we have Prop 13. So you get your locked property tax basis and you own it for a while. And all of a sudden you might be really surprised at what effective cap rate you're experiencing on your investment. Yeah. And actually one of my investors always tells me, um, you know, because when I first met one of my mentors, I told him I was going to uh, invest out of state. And he's like, why? <laughs> We're sitting on a gold mine here. And so um, can you can you speak on that a little bit, um, investing in California versus out of state? And like, the, I know sure. there are a lot of people who don't want to invest here because of the legislative environment. So how are you finding that? I totally get that. I mean, that's actually probably the most common talking point that I get from pretty much anybody that comes into our office as a potential client. And it seems like everybody's made a business out of talking trash about California or maybe now both <laughs> coasts, really, so that they can take the money to the Smile States, the Sun Belt, whatever, the Midwest, right? That's just a really, that's been a popular pitch. It's easy to come to California, raise money here to buy stuff that looks really cheap somewhere else. And I understand that. And I understand the complaint about the legislative environment. But when you really sit down and you look at the numbers and you look at the history, California makes an excellent case for itself, despite the environment. I will be the first to admit it's challenging to operate here. The rent control is real. It's statewide. It's a pretty mild version for the statewide rent control. And we've definitely learned to work within the rules there. And it hasn't been a big deal. That was new in 2020. And each individual city has some of their own rules. And sometimes you have county rules to deal with and you have never ending eviction moratoria and you have a judicial environment that's challenging and you have litigious tenants and you have extortionary law offices. And it sounds really fun, right? <laughs> but uh, if you learn the rules and you know what you're doing, a lot of that exists as a symptom of the characteristics in the market that make you really successful if you own properties here for a long time. The reason we had to legislate to the tenant's benefit is because it's too easy to be a landlord in California. There's not enough supply. The rents skyrocket because it's impossible to build here too. And it creates this sort of vicious cycle for tenants, which unfortunately makes it renter affordability a major challenge. And it's really hard to, you know, build new units, especially class B and C. It's, it's just not done. So if you think about that and you think about like the rent control and the tenant, you know, regulations and tenant friendly, you know, legislative environment, and you do a little study on that. We did this a number of years ago. We went back and looked at when rent control in Los Angeles started in 1978. And we compared that to some surrounding cities. So we specifically compared San Pedro which is city of LA, but it's coastal down by the port. It's very similar to Long Beach. It's very similar to like Inglewood, Hawthorne, similar types of markets, similar pricing on buildings. And interestingly, since our company has this data going back to the 1960s, from 1978, when LA City started rent control through, I think it was 1984, 1986, it was about eight years. Properties in San Pedro appreciated by more than the surrounding comparable cities. 
And, you know, unfortunately, it's a testament to the fact that rent control doesn't work. It doesn't make buildings affordable. And I don't think we're going to win that battle, unfortunately, with the politicians. But it does show that actually it creates inefficiencies in the market and it causes your buildings to be worth more over the long run. And it actually exacerbates the rent issues, too. In the rent controlled markets, market rent is higher than it is anywhere else. And sure, you might have to work with cash for keys to get tenants to you know, move somewhere else. You might have to wait to raise rents, but when you do get that vacancy, you get a giant pop in value and you can make a ton of money if you're patient. So it's actually a pretty good market to be involved in for a number of those reasons. And, and uh, to your point uh, about the rent control situation in regards to politicians not necessarily being convinced that it doesn't work, um, rent control is one of the few things that the vast majority of economics and economists, people in that industry actually agree on. In yeah. that it doesn't work, and and currently there's what you can, we can consider a, a live test of rent control in uh, the Twin Cities, Minnesota, and Saint Pete, in and, and uh, Saint Paul, where one is under rent control and the other isn't, and the rent is incrementally getting higher in the rent controlled uh, city. So um, numbers don't lie, right? So <laughs> we can we can understand Absolutely. that. We, we yeah, understand I, that. I'm actually from Minneapolis. I grew okay, up there, so, now. so yeah. I know me, and I have a buddy who is an attorney who does landlord law in Minneapolis and St. Paul. He was telling me all about that situation, mm -hmm. how many projects got pulled out of the development pipeline as soon as they did that in St. Paul. And it's just like what you said, it ruined the rental market for everybody on board. They're going to have to change it. It's going to yeah. destroy their real estate market. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on, on this, you know, since the, the great financial crisis up until now, uh, the cap rate environment from coastal to, to inland or smile states or whatever you call them, there's been a big delta there where, you know, on the, on the coasts, cap rates compress rather quickly, whereas in the smile states, they've compressed a little slower. But with the interest rate policy that we've experienced over the last 12 years, um, that delta has, has compressed itself, where uh, cap rates on the coasts are, you know, pretty close to those in your Nashvilles, your Phoenixes, your uh, Texases of the world. And so that, that selling point where you can get a better bang for your buck in the Midwest, as opposed to the coast is starting to lose its ability to, to, to be proven. So I'm, I'm wondering if you're seeing, you know, investors sort of realize that, or, or is that, is that sell still, you know, holding true, even though it is in fact incorrect with, with the current climate that we're in? Absolutely. Actually, a lot of people I think are still running on those talking points from a few years ago when there was a pretty wide spread between cap rates here and cap rates in some of those out-of-state markets. And it's not only like what you said, actually it's inverted in some cases. Cap rates here, even in like coastal Long Beach, you can go buy apartment buildings between five and six caps right now. In fact, I had an offer on a six cap deal last week. I didn't get it because it, it was a really good price. <laughs> but, and that was, and that was nine blocks to the beach, wow. to the Pacific Ocean for a six cap. Wow. And so when you talk to people investing in Dallas or Austin or some of the Florida markets, our cap rates are higher than theirs are right now. You know, it's amazing. And so, yeah, I think, you know, and it's changed a lot. It's, if anything, it's, it's the same cap rate, if not even higher here than it is in some of those other markets. And I've seen some of our investors that actually went out of state to buy some stuff coming back. Because all of a sudden, they a lot of these people live in California because mm -hmm. it's a great place to live, right? And they just put their money somewhere else. A lot of these guys are coming back and investing here again because they're looking at what they can buy out there. And it's a three and a half, four, four and a half cap rate. 
And they're looking here and it's four and a half, five, five and a half. And they can drive to the property in 20 minutes and go check in on what's going on. And it's a smaller building and they don't have to deal with as much. And all of a sudden that makes a lot of sense. Maybe you should add the cost of plane tickets and an out-of-state operation <laughs> to your cap rate analysis too and see if that makes sense, you know? And, and you know, that that's just a lesson to all of us that you have to constantly be underwriting, constantly talking to brokers okay. in different markets if you're in different markets because what's true yesterday may not be true today and what's tr true today may not be true tomorrow. As if, if you stay tapped into the market, you will realize that, you know, cap rates here are compressing or cap rates there are expanding. And you as an investor can take advantage of that. But if you're just simply listening to, you know, podcasts or reading articles right. about what's going on in the real estate industry, you're, you're almost sure to be left behind because even though real estate transacts slow, the industry moves quite fast. And if you lose touch, um, it's tough to, 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 you know, get back up to speed. And so, right. uh, sorry, go ahead. I think you're absolutely right. And not only that, people don't realize how regional the markets really are, right? Like, especially for those of us that like, we remember 2008 and the GFC, and that was an exception in that it hit the whole country, right? Everybody got it really bad. Some areas got it worse than others, definitely that overbuilt, but everybody got it really bad. I think this time around, it's really pronounced how different it is region by region. Even when you look at financing right now, we're in this rising interest rate environment and you hear all this talk. And it's like people that invested in some of these huge deals in the middle of the country about rate caps and adjustable rate bridge loans, right? And that being a thing, that doesn't really exist here. Like, that's not even a thing. All of our debt is fixed for like three, five, seven, or 10 years, unless you're doing like a super high interest private money bridge loan that's like due in 18 months. And so the same levels of distress that might be hitting people in some of those other markets is not really happening here at all. It's totally different. It's amazing how how even the financing is regional and how it plays out. It's 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 so funny you mentioned that. I'll, I'll just give a quick anecdote. A couple of weeks, or actually I think a month ago at this point, um, myself and my wife, we went and walked um, a property in a kind of city, like west of City Heights, Azalea Park. Um, it was a little a little house with the ADU already built on it, already permitted, ready to go. It, was just, it just got on market a couple of days before. Um, so, you know, I was talking to the broker, as you do, when you walk through a property and I told him to, to reach out to me, I'm probably going to, you know, put an offer in within a week. And, you know, a few days later, uh, he texts me at that moment, I'm reading an article talking about how, you know, property value is going down. The real estate market is super soft. You know, uh, the, the sky is falling basically. And he tells me like, look, if you're going to put an offer in, you got to put it in today. The property was listed at 750. And he, he, he told me that you got to put an offer in honestly within the next hour or so. And if it doesn't have an aid in front of it, don't even bother. <laughs> so that's, that's the state of the market here in San Diego yeah. while I'm reading an article telling me that the, you know, the market's going to crash and burn. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, so Anthony, uh, I'm curious, so what's your buy criteria? And then, you know, we already talked about cap rates and, and, and interest rates. And so what's your buy criteria and what makes a good deal today? today's market in your opinion? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I like a value add deal like a lot of people do, right? That's where the juice is, of course. I'll look seriously at anything where I can get market rents to a GRM of 10, basically. Uh, and I prefer using GRM over cap rate because those shysty brokers, and I can say that because I'm a broker, are, you know, <laughs> always understating expenses, right? And so it's really hard to know what you're looking at if you're just looking at a big list of properties with cap rates on it. So I really like to look at GRM for my first look. Obviously, 
you're going to look at the cap rate when you get into expenses and what's actually, you know, what actuals are doing. And do you mind, I know you're yeah. probably getting into it later on, but do you mind telling the audience what GRM is? Yeah. So GRM stands for gross rent multiplier. And that's just the price divided by the gross scheduled rents. Very simple. So it's a revenue multiple, similar to like a PE ratio with stocks, although earnings would be, you know, after expenses. This is just straight up revenue multiple. These buildings are so simple that from my standpoint, I know how they're going to operate. And it's much harder to fake the revenue, right? If you've got fake leases and stuff, you've got a much bigger problem in your deal than like not including every expense in your marketing package, right? That's outright fraud if you're going to fake the leases. So you don't really see that. And you usually see the rents are accurate. And, you know, these buildings, I think you can pretty much use a 35% expense ratio on the, at least the size buildings that I tend to work with. And that's usually spot on. That'd be 50 for much larger buildings, 50 for other parts of the country, but 35 or even less tends to be pretty accurate here. So you can figure out what the real cap rate's going to be. And so it's really easy if you've got a big list of 50 properties to go through with your 10 key or your Excel, correct the rents a little bit, figure out what the GRM looks like on each property. You can calculate your GRM on actuals because that's going to drive your financing and you're going in cap rate and your leverage. And then you can calculate your GRM on the market rents. And the delta between the two is the upside. And if GRM on the market rents is going to establish what that property is worth when it's finished. So if I can get a market GRM of 10 or lower, I'm interested as a buyer. If it has an opportunity to do ADU garage conversions, I'm also interested because that's a great value add here too. Very simple criteria. And then the financing matters a ton, right? <clears throat> if there's way, if the rents are way, way below market, it's going to be much more expensive to get there. And you're probably going to have to either put a huge down payment down, which significantly impacts your returns because you don't get as much leverage, or you have to go use one of these like private money bridge loans. And you're, right now you're going to pay 11 to 13% for the privilege. And then you're going to have a balloon payment staring you in the face in 18 months. So, you know, the juice better be really good on a deal like that if you're going to go out and get that kind of financing. So I think like kind of my straight down the fairway deal looks something like, uh, you know, 12 and a half, 13 times gross on actuals, better if I can, with an upside down to 10 or lower. That's the lingo for the GRM. You say X times gross is like 13 times gross is GRM equals 13. And that's the way you'll hear a lot of people talk about it here in the Southern California market. It's, it's, maybe it's another lower regional difference, but uh, kind of different on what you see elsewhere. Love it. And, then, and what's your long-term goal in regards to real estate investing? And do you, you, know, do you plan on building out a, a large company in the space? Great question. So yeah, I mean, I've got kind of two goals, right? I've got my own personal portfolio growth goal. Um, and it's not a per, it's not a number of doors for me. I think for investors, it makes a lot more sense to try and shoot for a future net equity in real estate or net worth. I think once you have the net worth created, and this is especially for California investors, this makes a lot of sense because California is very good at generating net worth over time, even if the cash flow today might not be great. So I have a future net worth target you know, for when my, my youngest daughter goes to college. <laughs> and I know that if I can get there, I'm going to be able to engineer my portfolio and get the cash, on, cash return on equity that I'm going to need to see to basically be financially independent and not work if I feel like it. On the brokerage side of the business, <clears throat> sure. I'd love to grow the company to be larger. Uh, we put in a lot of work over the last few years on putting systems, processes, trainings, software, and making it as easy as possible for new agents to jump into the business and teach people. Um, that's still a really time-consuming activity though, because it's a pretty complicated, you know, business, right? And so to be able to learn enough to be able to teach people how to do it, our agents have to be really sophisticated. So we spend a lot of time with our agents. I spend a lot of time 
you know, writing agent training materials, recording videos, doing training sessions, doing analysis and showing people how to do that stuff. I would love to see our company uh, open a few more offices in Southern California, perhaps expand in Northern California, maybe go by, by Coastal. We've been uh, partnering a little bit with some other people in New York, uh, which is a similar market. And you might ask, why would you do that? You're going from one impossible area to operate to another. Well, you know, maybe that can be our competitive advantage, right? So um, I think that would be great to be able to open the uh, open the model up in some other states and some other markets and, and really expand. But we'll see how it goes. I'm, I'm not looking to like, you know, lever up the uh, the brokerage business, take on a bunch of debt, you know, or private equity company to invest here. I'd prefer to promote with from within, you know, and kind of grow organically. Okay, and, and yeah, you even mentioned just in, in addition to that organic growth and. You spoke to the agent and the materials that you put out. Uh, let's talk about broker relations, really, right? You're, you're unique in the sense that, you know, you, you use your brokerage and using that to fund your deals and grow and scale. You also mentioned the code, the code GP opportunities and right. and whatnot. So so let's speak on that brokerage. A lot of beginning investors are, are scaled to establish a relationship. So what would you recommend uh, beginner investors do to establish those relationships? And uh, touch on just any any perspective you can share on on the broker hat, just in general. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's actually that's a great question. A lot of these, um, I don't know why, but a lot of brokers don't go on the podcasts and the sim. I don't. They should. It's a great way to meet people. But you know, I found that to be kind of unique. And there's there's a lot of people that jump into the business, and I don't know what they read or where they go, but they think I just have to. Talk to every single you know broker in town, underwrite every deal, and see if I can get off market deals from everybody, and just you know write the lowest offer I can possibly find on every deal, and and that I'll eventually get great deals. Well, you know that's a great way to get to the bottom of a lot of brokers' list. No, <laughs> <laughs> so I can start by telling you what not to do, and I get these calls and the emails every day. Is hey, I'm so and so, you never met me before. Send me your off market deal, because <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely going to send you my off-market deals. I have no idea who you are. I don't know if you can, you know, perform. I don't know if you've invested in this area. I have no idea what your expectations are, you know, anything like that, right? Where do you think the off-market deals really go? The off-market deals go to the people that the brokers have probably worked for before, that they're comfortable with. They've shown an ability to not only perform, but to be good to work with, right? It's unfortunate, but somewhere along the line, the brokerage client relationship for a lot of people has turned adversarial. Real estate agents and brokers over the years have developed a bad reputation and in some cases totally deserved. I will admit that. And it can feel like there's maybe something happening that you don't understand when you're talking to a broker. Uh, but really, you know, the best thing that you can do is create that relationship with someone before you need them to ever, you know, give you a deal. And if they can invite you into their world a little bit and show you around and you're willing to be loyal, you're going to get a lot of activity out of those people. It's okay if you, you know, you're going to have a relationship with two or three people that happens. Calling every single person in town is, is a really bad way to do business though. And you're probably not going to get anything. I would say identify some people that you feel like are in the right part of the market for you um, that do a lot of volume in your space and see if you can set up meetings Figure out what things are actually selling for. Ask them about their business, about what they like to see from clients as far as qualifications and criteria, what's realistic. 
Like, it's not a great idea to make a call to a broker and say, here's my criteria and list out a whole bunch of absolutely impossible things to, to do. That's a, that's a clear indication to me. You obviously don't know the market, right? Because you're not serious. You're just wanting to buy something at 50% of retail. That's great. I would too, right? But it doesn't, that doesn't really happen, you know? And so it's all about the relationships. It's all about reaching out in advance, trying to learn about people, be genuine. If you don't have experience, that's okay. You know, everybody has to do their first deal. You're a lot better off telling them, hey, like, I'm getting started here. I really want to learn. You seem like you are plugged into the market. Like, what can you tell me? That's way better than trying to, like, fake it and get your buddies proof of funds and pretend you own a bunch of stuff. Then, it, you know, and it's going to come out. Like, people can just tell, right? There's so much terminology to begin with. Like, you're just, you're not, you're not going to last. So I think reach out way in advance. Have the have the conversations about you know what reality really looks like, and then when there's a deal that fits what you want to do, it's going to come your way. At the same time, you got to be persistent, right? We get calls every day, all day. We get emails every day, all day. People asking the same thing, and if it's the same like Mailchimp email with your criteria, that's also not going to do it. But persistence will. I have an operating partner who did a great job with me on this. He's a he's a perfect example. He came to me, we met at a conference. I didn't know if anything would happen of it. He reached out to just start with a coffee. We just got to know each other a little bit. Didn't really talk about doing anything specific deals. Then he came in, did a more detailed meeting. We went through kind of our whole model, how it works. He started by buying a property with us as a client. And then the relationship grew from there. We got to become friends. And now he and I are syndication partners and we raise funds together and it's, and it's a great relationship. I definitely can't offer that to everybody, right? Because everybody wants that kind of thing that, that to happen, but this is, a, it's a slow process and it's about putting in the time. All right. Well, we're going to move on to the legacy round, the next part of the show. And she, do you want to kick that off for us? Yeah, sure. So the legacy round, Anthony, is just kind of an open forum on your favorite acquisition. Or you can choose one of the three or touch on all three, either your favorite acquisition that forever changed the trajectory of your business, practical tips on how to grow a portfolio, or how to build your investor network. Wow. Okay. I'll start with the more with the more practical portfolio building tip, and then maybe I'll talk about a deal as I think of one. So, you know, I think a lot of people jump in thinking, I'm just going to buy stuff and I want good deals because that's how you make money. And like, that's the plan, <laughs> you know? And e yes, that's true, obviously. <laughs> but that's a pretty difficult way to like write a business plan is I'm going to go get some good deals, right? <laughs> that doesn't work. Uh, I really think you'd be amazed how many people come into the business with no written plan at all. And your written plan should have some specifics, some numerical specifics about it. You should know what you're starting with and what your resources are. This can be really simple. We help clients do this all the stuff. I'll, we do this kind of stuff all the time. We've got some free downloads on our website at, at buckinghaminvestments.com if people want to check it out. But it can be as easy as like taking the time value of money equation and plugging in your own situation to the variables. And by that, I mean, you could say, I'm going to invest present value dollars in real estate investments uh, for N years at a sustained rate of return of R percent, and I'll be worth future value dollars at the end of the plan, right? Bust out a financial calculator, ask yourself how much you want to be worth, how much you have today, what rate of return do you think you can get in your market? And it's going to spit out how long it's going to take you. There you go. One sentence, put it on your desk, and then start underwriting deals and figure out how you can get there, how many exchanges it's going to take you to get towards that number, 
how many refis and buys it's going to take you to get towards that number, what sort of metrics you need to see on your returns. And it's really going to start to coalesce so that your portfolio is going to be a clearer path to you than just, I need to get good deals. And when does this get fun? Because the truth is, if you work the math on it, there's an exponential curve to things. And that flat part is at the beginning. So it feels like nothing's happening at the beginning and it's not very exciting. And I thought I was going to be rich. And I listen to all these podcasts and you know, when does this happen exactly? Well, it happens like 15 years in is the trees, yeah. and depending on what you do. So I, I think, you know, starting with a plan and really seeing how your equity grows over time, using it, some historical measures of performance in your market. And they're readily available from those friendly brokers that you've made some introductions to already. And you should be able to, in some sort of relatively simple but concrete way, chart that out. And that's going to be really helpful for you growing a property. And then be ruthless about execution. Follow up on your return on equity every year. See which properties are getting deleveraged and try to separate yourself from the emotional attachment to any of these buildings if they need to be sold. Do your refis when it has to happen, even if it means you're going to pay 6% for the money right now. Be in the market, do transactions. You're never going to be able to sell something at the top and buy at the bottom and save enough to pay for all those taxes. It doesn't work. You're going to have to own properties through all types of the cycle, and you're going to have to learn how to operate there. And if you just do that and you pay attention to where everything is every year, it's inevitable. You're going to do great. You will have an eight-figure net worth 15, 20 years. I guarantee it, especially if you're investing in Southern California. You this? Um, Wait, hold on. I have to tell everybody to rewind that and listen to it like five times. This is exactly the reason why I said you would be perfect to run Phoebe Long Beach Cerritos. So- um, that was awesome. I, you say that Thank it's you. super simple and nobody ever does it. You're right, actually. Nobody ever does it. It is super simple. But I love the way you broke it down. I personally am even going to listen to that over again. I mean, I do have a business plan. Just putting that out there. But sure. I love the way you wrote it out and, and yeah, explained it. So thank you. I, as soon as I said those three questions, I was like, oh, I should have just told him to go practical tips. And then I'm like, <laughs> you went practical tips. So thank, thank you. Got to get that in there. I mean, yeah, I, it's, I'm blown away how few people do this. We spend all this time learning about the technical stuff. And then strategy is just, nah, forget it. It's fine. Just go get good deals. It'll be fine. You know, like that's the whole point is the strategy. I just, I don't understand. But yeah, uh, it, it's, a, it's a great way to do it. We do have a little free, like, you know, they, worksheet you can download on our website. I think it's at like a seventh grade reading level. So, you know, like anybody can do it. If you're listening and you're in seventh grade, you've got time on your hands and you're going to be fabulously wealthy. Get started now. Write down that player. And at Bucking, www.buckinghaminvestments.com probably? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah it should be easy to find. On the topic of an interesting deal, if we have a minute, and I like to share some of these, you know, a lot of times it's about identifying what works uh, and your opportunity in, in a situation where you can solve somebody else's problem and so like recently for example there's been you know way higher interest rates and um, i could think of a good deal that i think is going to be a good one for me long term i recently bought a retail building so this is new right i'm usually doing multifamily, but i have a couple retail buildings now uh including this one and this property was was a really interesting deal it has a restaurant on the first floor an anchor tenant it has offices on the second floor, apartment unit on the, a unit on the third floor, and a bar on the second floor that's totally non-conforming. 
So there's a bar that you cannot open that occupies like 3,000 square feet of this building that has no ADA access whatsoever. <laughs> and the previous, it's the strangest it thing, right? Like, I, so we're, we're, we're currently figuring out how this is going to play out. I'm working with the city. Okay. Um, but the owner had built the restaurant originally, bought the building, built the restaurant, built the bar, I think, for his own uses upstairs and just didn't do it with permits because he was just going to hold his own parties. He lived at the building. He ended up selling the restaurant business to somebody else and just living in the property and living on, on the cash flow, which was fine for a while. I believe he ended up having a balloon payment coming due and really needed to exit the property, move on, do some other investments, right? So there's sort of a problem brewing there because now you have a property that you need to sell and you have 3,000 square feet that's not leasable at all and that you can't pull a business license for that should be retail, should be some sort of office. And so we were able to put a deal together that worked where I got a bank first and he carried a second that brought in enough cash to pay off the balloon payment keep his income in place. I was able to get the building and now I'm slowly working with the city to legitimize that space through their economic development partner development program because they want businesses to be able to open, bring people into town. It's in sort of an old, you know, downtown area that is revitalizing a lot right now and doing well, but it could be an absolutely fabulous deal if I could just get that space legitimized. And so you know, the old me might have just like surreptitiously done it and hoped I wouldn't get a code violation. But, you know, on the way out of that transaction, you have the same problem that the seller did when you went into it. So it's been an interesting process reaching out to the city and working with them. And they've been really cool. They've been really accommodating. If you're just honest with them and you talk to them about what you need to get done, like they understand the limitations of property ownership and, and what you need to do. And so I'm optimistic that we're actually going to be able to use the space in somewhat the same configuration even that it is already. And it, it, as soon as you legitimize the space, the value on this building probably goes up by one, one and a half to $2 million. So it should be a pretty good one. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a home run. It's actually, you know, it's funny when you said working with the city and they've been great. That's actually one of my favorite things about, and I love development and it's because I actually like working with the city because I think People always complain about working. I had to work with LADBS, so LA Department of Building. Oh, yeah. yeah, I know. So yeah, exactly. Everybody. <laughs> oh my God. Why would you do that? No, but I love it because really they're, I mean, everybody's a person. You treat them with respect totally. and that you know that they're getting yelled at all day by these people who want to get their, their plans stamped. Totally. Just a cool person and a good mm -hmm. person that's patient. You're like, I get what you're coming up against. I'm also coming up against this. What can I do to make your life easier so I can get this project over the finish line? And that's Absolutely. where your value add can come in, you know? And so, yeah. I, I, I think they were really surprised that I invited him to the space. And because that's what we did. We just said, why don't you come on over? I have this space. I need to do, let's figure this out. Instead of going to the counter, submitting my plans and then bothering them to see like, hey, when's this going to be approved? Like I probably would be in really rough shape if I had done that. And that's just the way everybody does it. But right. when they're like coming to the space, they're surprised. I just invited them in and they were like solution oriented, you know? And I think totally people don't realize that that's a possibility. Probably not an LADBS, probably not a possibility. <laughs> yeah. But if you're in one of these smaller cities where you can actually you know, talk to the people, there's people in positions that are, their job is to figure out how they can improve their community, 
get more businesses to move. And, and those are the people you should be talking to, not necessarily the people at the permit counter. And they know the right relationships and the people to introduce you to, to make the job easier. That doesn't mean you're going to be able to like not do it to code or anything like that. We're going to have to do that, right? But they're going to help tell me the path of least resistance so I can get this space legitimized. Right. I can't recommend that enough. Right. I love that. Awesome. And I, Anthony, I wanted to just jump in really quick and say I, I really like that story because of its unconventional nature. Usually, you know, most investors want to go, especially for multifamily, I want to go to a stabilized property where I can bump the rents a hundred bucks or reduce the NOI, reduce the expenses a certain amount. And I can, you know, I, I'll be able to capitalize on that Delta. Whereas you went in to a property that's non-conforming, had different types of, of uh, businesses inside the property, not only um, a restaurant, but also a bar, you know, other stuff. And it reminds me of a book called the confessions of a real estate entrepreneur. This book is chock full of stories just like that, where it's just very, you know, niche, strange ways to to get into real estate and you end up making a huge uh a pay on the back end because you saw some value in a property that no one else did and it's it's really inspiring because i consider myself an entrepreneur in the real estate space where i'm looking for not only the conventional way to make money with real estate but unconventional ways to make money with real estate and it just makes it a lot more interesting so i'm i'm glad you shared that story with us thank you i'll definitely have to check out that book and and i couldn't i couldn't agree more i mean if you can think creatively and you can find value where others maybe don't, you can do really, really well in this business. It's one of the few businesses left where there's rampant inefficiencies. Every The market inefficiencies are everywhere, right? If you're talking about anything that's like publicly traded or it's out there, like the price on any given day is the price of where what people are paying, right? There's yeah. literally no inefficiency in that market or very little. But real estate is rampant with that kind of stuff. If you have a piece of knowledge about what you can do to reposition something or capture value where somebody else is having a problem, you can create all this value. And you can do that in all kinds of different contexts, whether it's financing or, you know, units or, yeah, getting the use figured out. I mean, it's, I think the potential for creativity is part of what makes the business so much fun. A, a mentor of mine, because my, my background, I come from investment management on the public equity side, so stocks and bonds and whatnot. Yeah. And obviously in that arena, you know, um, insider trading is illegal, right? I, I spent many, many hours, you know, in, in training, getting my license, turn, learning that insider trading is bad. It's illegal. You'll go to jail. But a mentor of mine, when, when I was getting into the real estate space, uh, told me, you know, insider trading is not only legal in real estate, it's encouraged. Like the best are, are good because of information, not because of how smart they are not because of how much money they have, it's because of the information they're able to, to uh, compile. So um, yeah, I totally agree with you there. That's hilarious. My, my professor from that real estate class years ago said that to, to, <laughs> to the class. Insider trading is legal. And I thought, that's a really weird way to look at it. But you know, come to think about it. Yeah, that's right. It is, yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Let's, uh, let's move on to the Giordano round, Trey. All right, as you know, this is the Monty Family Butter Slice podcast, and it comes from Giordano's is the number one pizza spot there, known for these thick, deep dish slices of pizza. And so this is going to be a series of questions between Ike, uh, myself, and Chi that we're going to ask you rapid fire. So we've got, right. you know, five minutes or less, just bing, bing, bing. All right, All so right. the first one, <laughs> you're in the highest mountain in the world. These are the last words before you die. What will you scream out to the world and want them to remember you, Anthony, by? Oh, wow. I hope everyone agrees I did the right thing. Love that. 
Okay. Number two, if there's one slice of wisdom you wish you knew when you got started or advice you could pass on to others, what would that be? I wish I had gotten started earlier. I wish I understood that it was all about time and nothing else is more important. Same here. Number three, vocab. What are your favorite or three most critical real estate terms multifamily investors should know and why? You already started with gross uh, rent multiplier. Okay, so the GRM is super important. Very important. I, I mean, cap rate's a cop-out answer. Um, <laughs> go, learn what, go learn what the mortgage constant and positive operating financial leverage means. Love that. If you want me to explain, I can. I, it might take a bit. Actually, if, if, if you don't mind, mortgage constant, because that's really good for underwriting if you want to just go. Into yeah, so Sam, this is very relevant in today's rising interest rate environment. So people love to talk about the cap rate and comparing that to your interest rate. And you want your cap rate to be higher than your interest rate if possible, right? Because you get, they call that positive leverage. Well, that's not actually, from a textbook standpoint, what positive operating financial leverage is, unless your loan payments are interest only. I'm going to confuse the heck out of you for a minute. So the mortgage constant is just the payment, annual payment expressed as a percentage of the loan amount. So on an interest-only payment, it is equal to the interest rate. On an amortized loan payment, it's not. It, because you've got that amortizing in there as well, and, uh, part of the payment in there as well. So to truly have positive operating financial leverage, a mortgage constant spits out something similar to a cap rate, like a percent you should have the mortgage constant be less than the cap rate or your effective cap rate after you complete your value add. It's virtually impossible to hit this metric right now in this market because mortgage rates are at like 6%. So that would mean at a minimum, you'd have to get 6% interest only and buy a cap rate at 6% or higher, which is, which is super difficult. And if you have amortizing debt, then your mortgage constant is probably even higher, right? Because you have to get the amortizing part of the payment in there. But if you understand the metrics of that, the math works out such that if you can buy properties that have positive operating financial leverage where the mortgage constant is lower than the cap rate, literally it makes sense to borrow as much money as the, any of the banks will ever lend you, period, because you will have an infinite cash return on your invested cap. <clears throat> oh, and then you wanted number three. Uh, <laughs> debt coverage ratios. You got to learn about oh. how debt coverage ratios intersect with cap rates and income and how that's going to affect your leverage going into a building. Surprise! You didn't say ROE, but we yeah. should have said ROE. Well, we already covered it. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you're okay. right. It's more. That's more important. Yeah. But it impacts ROE. Yes, the debt coverage ratio impacts the two. All right, education is critical in this business. What books, apps, or mastermind groups would you recommend listeners immerse themselves in? So shameless plug time there, I guess. Uh, our founder, one of our founders, Marty Stone, wrote actually a fantastic book. Uh, with a bunch of super detailed practical knowledge on real estate investing. It's called The Unofficial Guide to Real Estate Investing. It's almost 400 pages long. It's on a whole bunch of like top 10 lists. It's got some outdated information in there since it was um, published back in, I think, like 2003 originally. But it's a really great book that goes kind of um, category by category through everything you need to know about real estate investing. So if you're getting started and you're reading mostly inspirational literature, that's fine but it doesn't really help you like get started. I highly recommend the unofficial guide. Otherwise, uh, the textbook from that class is actually amazing. It's super dry, it's super, super technical, but if you really want to learn this stuff, I, and it's even got a boring name, I think it's called like a investment analysis for real estate decision-making. How about that? Right? Like, ooh. Yeah. Sounds riveting. 
It's it's, it's not riveting, but it's actually fantastic. If you really want to get technical and serious, go there. You know, I love the podcast stuff. I love the seminar circuit, but it's difficult to get really deep on things. Another organization I highly recommend that has a huge suite of um, educational classes, books, models, uh, teachers, and networking is called the CCIM. So if you want to do apartment buildings or if you want to do retail, industrial development, whatever, CCIM is probably the highest regarded professional network of commercial real estate professionals. They also offer a designation if you're going to get really busy and you're going to do a lot of, uh, of volume. And the designation can be had for loan brokers, owners, syndicators, brokers, appraisers, whatever. You kind of submit a portfolio of qualifying experience. You go through all of their classes. Their classes are really intense. They're really good. They teach you a whole bunch about Excel and modeling and, and lots of special topics. They're usually about a week long. They have online stuff too. But if you kind of want a one-stop shop for very good, sophisticated uh, knowledge, I recommend the CCIM uh, to get going on that. All right, last question. And you've kind of answered this before, but I want you to get real practical with this one. So what is the very first action you would advise a brand new investor to take to start their journey in real estate? So say, you know, today I decided I want to invest in real estate here Wednesday, March 29, 2023 on March 30th. 2023, what is my first action? Go look at a property. It's so easy to like, I can tell you, read this, read that, write it down, make a plan, so on and so forth. And that's the easy stuff, right? Just to get excited about it and you consume a whole bunch of content. I think there's a lot of people that stay stuck in that spot. And it doesn't even matter. Like, you're not going to buy the property. It's cool. Like, just go look at one. Call some, call an investment broker out. Go find a duplex. Go find a hundred unit. Go find a gas station. Go find something with an environmental problem. Literally doesn't matter. Just like go look at a property and just ask the dumb questions <laughs> and, and have an interaction with like a real person doing the job in whatever space that is. Doesn't matter if you commit to doing that or not. If you just take that one first step and you take some action, you're so far ahead of everybody else. I can't believe how many people just don't really take real action. They think they can hide behind a computer screen, a book or whatever. Just go look at a property. It's, it's easy. Everybody's friendly. They want to sell it to you. Trust me. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, you guys heard it. If you guys want to walk a property, Anthony will will do your first walk. <laughs> Give us a call. We've got listings available. Come check it out. You don't have to buy them. It's cool. It's cool. I might send one. Of, I might. I might send one of our agents with you. You know, but. We'll, show, we'll show you a problem. I was laughing at the fact that you're like, it's cool. And I'm like, oh, that is cool. We'll like, take it personally. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, cool. Well, there you have it, folks. Another episode of Multifamily by the Side. So we got Anthony Walker in the house. I'm your host, Dre Evans. We got uh, Chi Nguyen, Ike Eke, as well as the other hosts. Thank you all again for another amazing show. For tuning in, we'll see you with the next one. Thank you. Oh.